Welcome and thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. Before we begin, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. The podcast is distributed on these platforms every Friday and is included in NAHU's weekly member-exclusive health policy newsletter, The Washington Update, giving you a head start on your weekly healthcare happy hour. We are less than two weeks away from our 31st annual and first ever virtual Capitol Conference. We are reviewing NAHU's legislative priorities in detail leading up to our conference so that you are prepared for meetings with your member of Congress. On this week's episode of the Healthcare Happy Hour, Marcy, John, and Chris are here to talk about what NAHU is asking for in the areas of Medicare, employer reporting, prescription drug prices, and more. So, it is more vital than ever for consumers that Congress pass key market stabilizers, including fixing the family glitch. What is the family glitch? The family glitch is that provision that requires that the household income be applied when an individual is applying for a subsidy on the health insurance exchange. So I work at NAHU and they offer me employer-sponsored coverage at an affordable rate. So it's less than 8.5% of my income. If I had a spouse that was also offered coverage as a spouse under NEHU, regardless of how much NEHU covered for that spouse, if my spouse on their own could go and qualify for a subsidy on healthcare.gov, they wouldn't qualify because the offer of coverage would be based on the household income and the affordability measurement would be based on the employee's offer of coverage from their employer. The calculation for my spouse would be determined by the fact that I had an affordable offer of coverage, regardless of how much NEHU covers for a spouse, and also on our household income and not my spouse's income. So that's what the family glitch is. We've seen oftentimes where it has really been prohibitive for families where their household income may look like it's a lot really one spouse isn't working. And even though the spouse that is working and has employer-sponsored coverage, their employer may offer spousal coverage, but they may not offer contributions toward that coverage. And unfortunately, that still is preventing them from being able to go onto the exchange and get a subsidy. At Capitol Conference, we're going to hear from Senator Masto And she has a plan to fix the family glitch. Chris, do you want to touch on that? Yes, thanks, Marcy. So there are multiple ways of fixing the family glitch, some of which we are very supportive of and other ones we have concerns. The way we'd like to fix the family glitch is to allow those who are not being covered by the employer plan to be eligible for tax credits in the exchange. And so that those individuals could go Uh, into the market as their own unit and apply for credit. Now, currently, the ACA market does not allow anyone to get tax credits if they are offered credible coverage for their employer. The difficulty is, as Marcy pointed out, the employers who only offer it for individuals, not family coverage. The way that we support going about this does not end the firewall between the employer coverage and the individual market. For example, 
you would not want people who are getting health insurance from their employer coverage to then go into the tax credit, into the individual market and get the tax credit. So you are just covering the people who are not being covered by the employer system and still keeping that firewall in place. Other proposals have talked about breaking down that firewall and allowing that family, including the person who's gotten coverage, to go in the individual market and get tax credits. We have concerns about that direction because we think that will undermine the employer-sponsored healthcare system and make it difficult for employers to hit the thresholds to be viable health insurance plans. Other proposals that we also have concerns about are ones that would actually mandate employers to offer family coverage. So we feel that this proposal that just allows the people who are not getting health insurance from their employer and don't have an offer of coverage to get tax credits is the most logical way of getting these people insured. And I think in the coming months, we're going to see more conversation around how do we finish insuring the last of the people who don't have health insurance. And I think fixing the family glitch would go a long way to providing that without going down roads of things like public option or Medicare for all. We are also advocating for some things already passed into law to remain that way, like preservation of the employer tax exclusion. What is the employer tax exclusion and why is it important that it remains as is? The employer tax exclusion is that provision that allows employees to deduct from their income the funds that employers provide to them in the form of health insurance benefits. The result is that they're able to lower their taxable income and employers are also able to lower the amount that they're reporting as salary on their FICA taxes. So this is a benefit to both employees and employers a tax benefit to both of them for offering employer-sponsored coverage. Some provisions that we've seen will either cap or eliminate the employer exclusion, meaning that the entire amount that would go towards employee benefits could be taxed, or they could tax a certain percentage. They could cap that as a certain percentage to tax it. And this has become a popular idea and it's been batted back and forth from both parties. So it seems like one party will own it and then the other, it kind of shifts to the other party's support for different reasons of just trying to look at different areas where they could possibly raise some income for the federal treasury. Unfortunately, we don't believe that this is the area to do so. And we do believe that allowing for the employer exclusion is one reason why we do have such a healthy employer-sponsored market because of those tax benefits that come along with it. It's important that they find pay-fors, and it's a very large bucket of money. But once you uncap the toothpaste, it's hard to put it back in. And once they start paying for things out of the employer tax exclusion, however meritorious it might be, it becomes a tempting target to continuously dip into that. And it would just, I think, start us down the wrong path. Hi there! We are sure you have seen our weekly COVID-19 email updates, but did you also know that we have a relief fund to help NAHU members? This fund allows members to apply for monetary assistance or donate to help fellow NAHU members in need. Please go to NAHU.org and click the COVID-19 relief fund button right on the home page. And to that point, we got really close in 2017 to having it put into a provision on one of the repeal, repair, replace laws. And we were very active with Operation Shout in getting that removed. And now it's coming back around as a thought to support some other measures like 
the possibility of increasing the amount of subsidies that are going out on the individual market or for funding different types of public options and those sorts of things. So our eyes and ears are open on this to make sure that as some of these different pieces that look to innovate and expand the market are looked into, that it's not done at the cost of the employers. Of course, a major issue for all healthcare consumers is lowering the cost of prescription drugs, and there have been no shortage of proposals in Congress aimed at doing just that. Which ones do we support? We all agree that drug prices have gotten out of control and that something needs to be done. The general pricing index is on the table, some modifications to reimportation. I do think that what's happened relative to the vaccine development is evidence that perhaps there are ways where we can improve approval processes and shorten timelines to reduce the cost to get the drugs developed into market. But we need to see specific language to know whether we're going to support a specific provision or not. They all come with positives and negatives, and you have to weigh development and getting orphan drugs, for example, something developed for that, or, you know, choking off development. So you don't want to do that either. While we're looking at the provisions now, we haven't seen any bills that have been introduced that have bipartisan support, which is really what's going to be needed to get anything passed. So you'll notice on your talking points, you don't have any bill numbers there. You just have our general principles when it comes to prescription drugs, which is that we do believe in lowering costs and doing so by, as John mentioned, allowing a speedier access to the market, trying to prevent some of the pieces that are currently in place that allow for some of the brand name drugs to prevent having their patent shared just by changing, you know, the color or the smell of the drug, preventing it to go into a generic form, which could lower the cost and create competition. So those are some of the things that we'd like to examine, as well as looking at the International Drug Index. There was some back and forth on regulatory work on this during the Trump administration. And I think going back through and looking at with a fine tooth comb on some of their attempts could possibly yield something that we could really see lowering the cost of prescription drugs in the Medicare market. Marcy, we discussed employer reporting in the context of COVID-19 on last week's episode. Can you go into a bit more detail on what NAHU is requesting in this area? Yes. So tune into last week's episode to hear what we're asking about for COVID-19 and employer reporting. But in general, on employer reporting, we are seeking the same resolution that we have in the past, which is to shift to a prospective employer reporting system where employers are reporting at the beginning of the year what they're offering instead of having to do so at the end of the year and having all of the what I like to call the fancy math problems of going back and doing the measurement periods and stability periods and all of that. Uh, The bill that we have supported in the past and are waiting on reintroduction would also do things like limit the amount of information employers need to gather, such as dependent social security numbers for dependents that aren't even on the employer-sponsored plan. That's just data that the employer doesn't need to have and just makes more work for everyone altogether. And we are having during Capital Conference, the chair for the Partnership for Employer-Sponsored Coverage, 
Christine Pollock, who's going to have a conversation with one of our members uh, just about everything that they're doing on employer reporting and some other provisions. But Chris Hartman, you might have something that you'd like to add on that from the partnerships perspective to give us a little teaser for folks that are going to be watching Christine Pollock from the partnership. Yeah, I think a lot of what we'll also be looking at is if there's ways of changing these things regulatorily. We do have a new administration in office and we're waiting for some more appointments, but I think there's a lot of opportunity to really take a fresh look at the purpose of the employer reporting system um, and the employer mandate and review that. I think for if you're meeting and talk to your members of Congress, I think the employer reporting system can get a little in the weeds for a lot of them. Uh, But I would bring it back to some of the points that Marcy discussed, particularly around why should an employer have to collect a dependent's social security number? It's one thing to collect the social security number of their actual employees, but now you're asking them to collect all the social security numbers of the rest of their family. In the world of Uh, data security that we live in, this is a real risk for many employers. I think points like that are ones that members of Congress can quickly grasp and understand very quickly about why we feel the system does not work for the world that we currently live in. So we're going to be advancing this topic on several fronts, yes, through legislation, but I also think there are new opportunities that are presenting itself with the regulatory option, uh, particularly at Treasury. Moving on. NAHU's Medicare priorities are similar to those from previous years as we strive to resolve issues that have existed for some time. One of those issues is considering COBRA as creditable coverage. John, can you talk a little bit about that? I'd be glad to. Let me start by saying that the issue is moving forward. We feel a very uh, positive this year that we can resolve this issue. But what it boils down to is that a number of people go on to COBRA and they are going to migrate into Medicare. And they believe that since it's an employer plan and uh, that is exactly what they had uh, with their employer, uh, that it would be uh, deemed as credible coverage. But in fact, CMS does not see it as credible coverage. And if they missed the deadline for what they have to do to get part B and so forth, they can incur a 10% penalty for life. It's always been the policy of CMS on the credible coverage, but uh, a number of years ago, they started collecting the penalty associated with it. And that got Congressman Kurt Schrader involved and Congressman Gus Belarakis, who is going to be speaking at Capitol Conference, the two of them, and addressing this particular issue. Yeah, I think we have a real opportunity to address this year. I actually think this also ties in quite a bit with COVID because people are coming on and off of their employer plans. And for some after the age of 65, I think you'll actually find more people falling into this COBRA trap. And we've seen, obviously, with the pandemic, a much higher use of COBRA than during the pandemic. So I think this topic is actually more timely than ever for Congress really to address it this time around. At the end of last Congress, the Energy and Commerce Committee did actually mark up and pass this bill. So we've already seen that steps like that have taken place. So we've gotten it past a committee, and now I'm hoping that we can make further progress, this Congress, by getting it past the House and Senate. Another main Medicare priority for our association is the elimination of the two-midnight rule for beneficiaries who were considered to be under observation status while being hospitalized. What is this rule and why do we want to see it eliminated? 
The problem is, is that if you need skilled nursing care, you have to have a, a minimum three-day stay. And the observation rule, if you're admitted under observation status, it doesn't count towards that three-day requirement. So CMS constructed a two-midnight rule, which is still confusing and doesn't work well and doesn't provide beneficiaries who are entitled to SNF care that benefit. So what we're seeking is to eliminate this barrier to care. What is interesting this year is that we have some new data that demonstrates very clearly that a lot of people who are affected by this rule are people who are low income, who are people of color, who have issues, you know, discharge planning is very difficult on any level, but for people with lower means who lack transportation and so forth, it's compounded. And so what happens we're finding is that they're cycling through the hospital repeatedly on observation status, never being afforded the benefit to which they're entitled. The evidence also demonstrates that with the SNF care, they don't cycle through anymore because they're getting the care that they actually need. So we can argue this from a fiscal perspective and also in the heightened issue around health disparities. There's also an issue with not just preventing coverage from Medicare when going from inpatient to skilled nursing facility if you were coded as outpatient and under observation status instead of inpatient, but there's also a difference in how Medicare will cover you if you are under observation status versus inpatient status. So Medicare will cover more if you're coded as inpatient versus observation status. So that's one difference. And then there's also compounded, as John mentioned, the difference between having to have that inpatient requirement to be able to then be covered under Medicare when you go to a skilled nursing facility. So this all kind of starts right at that beginning of how someone is coded and making sure that they're treated appropriately as an inpatient so that Medicare will cover them at that initial stage, but also at the stage in which they go to a skilled nursing facility. Again, I think this is a topic that is very timely with COVID. The Trump administration has actually suspended this rule during COVID in order to make sure everyone has had their health care needs met. I think this suspension has actually demonstrated that we don't need the said place at all. And so I think what we can do, and when you're talking to your member of Congress, is talking about now is the time to eliminate the observation rule altogether, now that we've suspended it for COVID. And, you know, we've not seen huge costs to Medicare. We're still looking for the, an actually clearer number, but it has not caused an explosion of overuse of Medicare with observation stays. So I think that this is the time for Congress really to address it now that we've had this sort of short experiment of suspending this rule during COVID itself. And this also affects how the patient's costs could be implemented when it comes to delivery of medication when hospitalized. Maintenance drugs would be covered under Medicare Part D instead of Part B, which adds even more cost onto the beneficiary. So it is really important to not add to those unexpected out of pocket costs and expenses and by treating them as inpatient and allowing their coverage to be different for their medications that are delivered in the hospital would also help with costs to the beneficiary. 
we know how much an aspirin costs in the hospital. Imagine if you're on really expensive maintenance drugs. And again, when the cohort is largely uh, people who are low income to begin with, it's just, it's a real burden. It is now time for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour Toast of the Week. What are we toasting to this week? This week, we're toasting to our highest office, the Office of the President, in celebration of Monday, which is President's Day. And don't forget about Valentine's Day on Sunday. Cheers! Thank you for joining us for the NAHU Healthcare Happy Hour, the official podcast of the National Association of Health Underwriters. For more information on NAHU's government affairs efforts or to become a member, visit NAHU.org.